Hey, before we get started, I wanted to let you know that the show is both on Instagram and Twitter under Unstructured P. Please come by, check it out if you like the show, say hello, and tell me what you think. Thanks. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, I'm super excited to be joined by Philip Ingram, MBE. Now, for those of us here in the States, Philip, can you break down what the MBE is and what you got it for? Uh, the, the MBE is it's a national honor. It's um, a member of the Order of the British Empire. Um, and it's, it's the, the, the class of honor is the Order of the British Empire, and there's different levels of it. Uh, there, there's the member, um, there's an officer, there's a commander, and there's a knight. Um, and I got it when I was in the military for being the junior man on the planning team for NATO taking over from the United Nations in Bosnia. That's the official side. The unofficial side was I was actually running an underground magazine that was <laughs> um, so popular amongst the generals in the headquarters that they read that before they read the real news and got really worried if they weren't being mentioned in it in, in, in a good way. So that get, got them to see how popular they were. But I was known as one of the busiest men in the in the headquarters, and and then I suppose running the underground magazine, which was a bit of morale afterwards, um, <laughs> got, got got me that award. And when you're in the military, the level of the award sort of depended on what rank you were. I was a relatively junior captain at that stage, so um, yeah, it's it's nice for someone to say thank you. And it's uh, oh, and yeah. it's it's, give, it's given by Her Majesty the Queen, uh, you know, a, a big day out of Buckingham Palace where you go in and line up and um, it's pinned on your chest and you have a few words and and away you go. Um, so it, 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 Huge is, honor. it is wow, ge- genuinely an honour um, and I'm very privileged to get it. Well, I definitely wanted to get that out the gate. Now, you would you call yourself a spy? Um, how how do you define a spy? Yes, I do, but I, I do it slightly tongue in cheek. Um, because I was an intelligence officer. Um, I was in the British military for 26 years. Mm-hmm. Um, most of that, 14 of those years, I was in um, the Army Intelligence Corps, um, and therefore it had everything to do with all of the different skills of espionage. Um, so if you're involved in espionage um, and you're coordinating espionage, um, then um, are you the spy or are you the spy master? I'm probably more accurately the spy master. Okay. Okay. Well, and I've had um, some CIA agents on, so I don't know if it parallels here, but in the CIA, he described at three legs of the stool that you had the analysts who are kind of looking at the material. You have the case officers who are actually out there talking to, I guess, assets. I don't know what the right term would be. And then he was a member, one of them, he was a member of security. So he was helping secure the case officer who was talking to help feed the analyst material. Is that similar? It, it is similar. And I was the person that sort of owned a lot of that capability and would bring it together where, wherever it was. But um, slightly differently to the way a lot of the national agencies work, where they're very stovepiped, you know, I could be out um, uh, being the case officer running what we call covert human intelligence sources or CHIS, um, hum, human agents. So someone who's penetrated or, or we're running within an organization to get information from that organization, um, and they're actually part of it. Um, so I'd, I'd run them, but I'd also be doing analysis at higher level um, and writing my own analysis papers, as well as directing where the intelligence and intelligence collection priorities were going to be. So um, you know, fascinating stuff. So how did you actually become a spy? 
or work intelligence? Well, I, I was when I first joined the military, I was um, a maintenance officer in U.S. terms. So I joined an organization called the Royal Electrical Mechanical Engineers. Hmm. I didn't have a mechanical engineering background. I had a, um, an applied science background. I didn't particularly like running around with spanners and fixing things. <laughs> I, I, d- I did like having lots of big armored vehicles. And this was when the Cold War was on in Germany. And it was, it was right. fantastic. You know, I, my second job um, uh, in Germany was commanding a, a, an organization called a forward repair group. And if the balloon had gone up, the Russians were going to come across and um, we had an organization called the Covering Force that was going to fight the Russians to slow them down to allow mm-hmm. um, uh, NATO troops to deploy out properly into their defensive positions. And I was part of the Covering Force. So we'd have lasted probably about a day, if we were lucky, before we'd have been <laughs> obliterated. Um, but but it was if driving all over Germany in big heavy tanks and uh, and uh, you know, that for someone who's in your early twenties, you know, I, I was the only officer that uh, was in in my unit. I was commanding sixty or seventy soldiers, wow. complete auto- complete autonomy with their own um, uh, you know, uh, portable kitchen facilities, our own logistics support, Ooh, everything else. We, we, we did our own stuff, and I just went and plugged into a brigade-sized formation to support that brigade in whatever way they needed. We, we were the sort of the breakdown organization for, for, for tanks, and that was, that was really, really good fun. Well, great. I want to foreshadow something that will come later, because um, back to a CIA agent I had on um, before, he had mentioned how the Cold War um, CIA, they called it the, quote, cocktail circuit. In comparison to the Middle East, and and things really radically changed within the CIA over that Mm -hmm. period. So I just want to put a pin in and then kind of um, project out for that. But yeah. You actually um, started during the Troubles, if I recall. Um, the, tr- the Troubles in Northern Ireland, we, we go back to, you know, I joined the military in 1984. Um, uh, and that early part of the 80s was um, a very, very busy time in Northern Ireland. And for those that haven't twigged it already, my accent is is a Northern Irish <laughs> accent. So you know, uh, I, I, I had to get posted back to Northern Ireland for um, a minimum of 28 days before they get a medal, give me a medal for actually being there. Um, <laughs> having having lived there for um, uh, 19 years before I joined the military. Um, and I, I, I came from a, a little town um, very close to the border, um, and it was known as bandit country. In the 70s, um, mm. it was the most bombed town in Europe and probably the most bombed town in the world um, with the number of uh, explosive do- devices that went through. So join the army to see the world, get posted home on my first ever <laughs> posting. Um, and it, it was fantastic. You know, the I was 19 years old. I had a platoon... Um, uh, covering uh, lots of green operations across the whole of Northern Ireland and covering a lot of covert operations across the whole of Northern Ireland. Uh, the green operations included all our bomb disposal operations. Mm. Um, uh, I, I uh, remember you know, I was the, the second youngest in the platoon, but uh, the, the advantage of having the accent was whenever I went into the operations room to brief people that were going out there, I had credibility. Mm. I could say, as you're, as you're driving down that road, watch that house there because um, uh, you know, uh, uh, there, there are individuals in there who are associated with this organization. But if you mm. get 300 yards further down the road, um, it, it'll change. Check the flags. Look, look, look for the, the, the different color paving zones and you'll, you'll see this. And the guys and girls will go out and they'd suddenly um, notice that what I was saying oh, wow. um, what, uh, happened. But that's because, you know, I'd, I'd been there for so long and it's not a particularly big place. Um, so I could bring that credibility piece in that gave them a little bit of additional confidence. And that allowed me to grow up um, very quickly because at least I knew what 
what I was doing there, and um, whilst I was learning the soldiering side of things. Um, so it was it was one of the best tours I think in my twenty six years, um, uh, a year on on operations in Northern Ireland. Um, Did your growing up there help you explain how to talk to different folks? And and by that I mean I I feel like there's always a cultural aspect to any operation or situation. Like how you approach people will make a big difference on you know your effectiveness. Everything's about people. Everything's about the way you talk to people. Um, there's, there's too many operations I've been on where I've seen people go in and um, try and project where you've come from, your personality, your cultures, your beliefs, your backgrounds onto the people that you're in there who you've been invited into their country by someone to, to have an effect. Um, and you know, from an intelligence officer's perspective, you're always thinking of things from um, the enemy's perspective, not from your perspective. So you can try and second guess where they're coming from. It's the same when it comes into different countries and, and coming in with, uh, from that cultural perspective and, and putting yourself in the position of the people that live there right. and talking to them and dealing with them from, from that perspective. So from Northern Ireland, it was easy for me because you know I was from there. Um, that in some cases was great. In other places, I remember down in South Armagh, um, which was bandit country on one particular um, uh, operation where we were stopping cars to check them. Um, and this car came through and the local uh, IRA commander was in the car uh, with his wife and um, one of his right-hand men. Uh, and we knew it was the local IRA commander. We knew who most of the terrorists were. Um, but uh, you know, I was the person that um, was tapped on the window of the car and asked to see his driving license and oh, identity wow. papers and, and all the rest of it. And he could see that I was wearing a different coloured berry to the soldiers that were there. He suddenly heard the accent. He realised it wasn't one of the local units that was mm. there and, and he clammed down completely. He would not say a thing because he didn't know where I was coming from. Right. Um, and, and you can pick up nuances and it's you'll pick up cultural nuances. I, I did a, a, a little sort of fun exercise with uh, some of my colleagues um, when we went out one day in Belfast and were sitting in a coffee shop. Um, and I could, uh, I said, just, just watch this. Just, you, you think people are blending in here. Uh, as people are going past, I'm going to identify what their potential uh, religious, I'll use religious, but, but because, hmm. but the troubles were more than religious, but religious background was and, hmm. and explain why as they're walking past. And I'd go, Catholic, 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 Protestant, Protestant. Oh, Brit, Catholic, Catholic, <laughs> Brit. Right. And, and they said, well, how did you do it? I said, okay, what I'm, what I'm looking for are uh, the way people carry themselves, the, the, the style of clothes that they wear, because you find that people from different areas will wear different styles of clothes and, right. and they'll group together. Um, you look at the jewellery that they've got on. You know, most people who are wearing um, uh, sort of heavy crucifixes or more crucifixes, ladies who are doing that are probably from a Catholic background. Um, mm -hmm. It's the way people carry themselves. And uh, you, you look at the different colours that they're wearing and maybe sports shirts or other bits and pieces and, and knowing what the local teams were and everything else. Uh, you're, you're not going to get someone from a Republican area wearing uh, a Linfield football shirt or or, uh, or or someone from a Loyalist area wearing a Celtic football shirt. And, and therefore, it, it, it's, it's things like that that would give it away. And then you could spot anyone who was different and someone who was carrying themselves a little bit straighter and had slightly mm. shorter hair and was marching a little bit more and you go, oh, there's the Brit, there's the army, <laughs> there's the soldier who's, who's off duty. Um, and I said, if I can do that, then anyone who's here can do that. So blending in is very, very difficult indeed. Um, and, and you wow. apply that anywhere in the world. Apply that That's fascinating. Now, because you grew up there and you had the military presence, both 
around you when you were growing up and then you were suddenly part of it. Were you in essence changing sides? Did you, did you see it from two different sides or how, how would you describe that? Well, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. Um, you know, the, uh, the whole of um, Ireland um, the island of Ireland up until 1921 was part of the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that's only whenever partition came in and uh, the 26 counties uh, democratically voted to leave the United Kingdom. And the six counties voted to remain in the United Kingdom that the partition happened. Um, and uh, there, there, there were various issues over, over, over history where people have tried to adjust um, uh, the borders and all the rest of it. You know, for example, during the Second World War, um, Winston Churchill offered South Armagh, which was predominantly Roman Catholic, um, mm. uh, and um, uh, uh, the area where, which was nicknamed as Bandit Country during the Troubles, he, he offered that back to, um, or, 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 or to be transferred to um, the Republic of Ireland um, for a, a likewise transfer um, of a, a, a sort of more Protestant um, enclave in County Monaghan of roughly the same sort of um, uh, uh, size and proportion, all the rest of it. And the answer that came back from Dublin was, we're not having those troublemakers at all. You can keep, you can keep them yourself. Um, and, you know and- I, I hate to interrupt. That, it's kind of funny you mentioned Churchill and offering. It sounds like he was very aware of the religious um, cultural affiliations and was willing to draw the lines. But at the same time, he's been accused of being, um, I hate to say, part of the cause of the Middle East by just being a flagrant map maker. Oh, ignoring. There's two two bits there. I'll I'll very briefly talk about the Middle East and then I'll go back to a bit of Irish history. Um, The the Middle East is a, a, and it's more than the Middle East, I'd say out into Southeast Asia, um, in through Africa, um, Mm. probably in South America as well. But um, my my South American history isn't um, uh, possibly as good as yours. But you, you, you find during that Churchillian time and beforehand, when countries that we know of at the moment were being designed, you got mandarins in Whitehall in London with their bowler hats on, sitting there and pulling out their their, their ruler and putting it down <laughs> on a map and going, okay, right, so now we'll call this Persia and we'll call this uh, a new country called Iraq and there's the border and they'll just draw a line down it, not understanding the, the, where the tribal areas were, where families were going to be split and everything else. Come forward a few years to the um, Dayton um, uh agreement in Bosnia. And I remember sitting um, for a, a com- complete overnight once Dayton had um, been signed, um, going through the uh, boundary that they'd put in um, on a, a very small map and translating it into a big map to try and go through all those cultural differences. And through so we didn't weren't going through a village, so we weren't splitting a house down the middle right. um, and, and, and various other bits and pieces with as much intelligence as, as, we, as we had together. Um, Ireland is complex and you know, the, the 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 different national bits that there are throughout the whole of the United Kingdom um, have been complex for you know, hundreds and hundreds, probably thousands of years. Um, you know, going back to what where the Romans could could conquer and got through, where the where the French then came in through through Hastings, and what the Scots were doing to the English, what the English were doing to the Scots, <laughs> what the Wel- what the Welsh were trying to do to everyone, um, and the and the Irish. Well, um, you know, the, 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 the Scots got the English to build a big wall between England and Scotland to try and keep them out. You know, I say the Irish dug a great big trench, and we've called it the Irish Sea to keep, to keep the English <laughs> and, and stuff out. But yeah, we we managed to keep snakes out, and I think that that's that's about it. But but you know, the, the, the history's always been 
easy to label. One of the problems that we have in the West is we love to put things in a little box and we love mm. to put a really simple label on it and say that box with that label means this and therefore everyone's mm-hmm. going to fall into that and, and, and work together. It, do- it doesn't work like that. One of the big um, things of, of Irish history, Northern Irish history that goes back are the 12th of July parades. They um, are very loyalist and Protestant in in the uh, the way they uh, come across, and it's it's ninety nine point nine nine percent Protestants are part of the um, Orange Order. Um, mm. It celebrates a battle that happened in sixteen ninety called the Battle of the Boyne, oh, where um, and, and it literally it, it goes back to that. Um, and the Battle of the Boyne, because of what we see with the loyalist parades at the moment on the twelfth of July, is billed out in the international press as those are the Protestants celebrating their victory over the Catholics. Um, those are the English celebrating their victory over the Irish. When, if you go back into history and you examine it, um, the Irish side in the Battle of the Boyne was the recently deposed uh, King James I of England mm. with his Catholic Irish army. So English king, Catholic Irish army, fighting King William of Orange, mm. a Dutchman, with his Protestant, Scottish, planted Presbyterian and um, uh, Wesleyan army from Europe that just happened to be supported by the planted Protestants uh, more in Northern Ireland. And and King William won, and he became, or he had already deposed James I and and taken over as the King of England and and everything else. But it's much more complex than just Catholic, Protestant, English, (laughs) Irish, and that's just one little bit of it. You you try and examine every other little bit, uh, and that complexity is is there day in, day out. And it's not just in Ireland, it's it's across the world. That's so wild. It makes me think, what is it? You got, uh, well, in England, and I may be saying it wrong, but I find it ironic that the royalty has not been of English origin since 1066. Well, your royalty, they, they used to marry themselves off to each other just to just to have um, uh, di- that. That was how international agreements were signed. Right. Um, one 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 member of the royalty got married to another member of the royalty <laughs> in, in, di- in different parts of the world, and that meant we weren't going to fight each other, and we got a good trade deal. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I wonder if in the UK US trade deal post Brexit, does that mean that Donald Trump and Theresa May are going to get married? Would that be the way of solving that? <laughs> no, who knows? <laughs> you never know. He's not going to mor- marry Boris. Well, <laughs> but he can. Well, he can now. There's nothing to stop him doing that. So, you know, but that, but that's the way international relations were were, were done then. So, so you got an, an awful lot of mixing of the royal families that are around, um, and and that goes through in, in current blood. Um, what annoys me is when we come to sport. Um, you know, being an Irish, uh, an Irishman, being a Northern Irishman, I support Ireland at rugby, and there is only one team at the whole island who plays rugby, um, and it's the Irish uh, um, national anthem that is sung at it. Scotland has got their own national anthem for their rugby team. Wales have got theirs, um, but England um, uh, sings uh, "God Save the Queen," which is the national anthem of the United Kingdom. That includes Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales, because they can't get their own national anthem. So, <laughs> the, the, na- you, the nationalistic um, identity of different elements of the United Kingdom is fascinating. And well, it's, uh, it's confusing to me. You have to be kind of neither here nor there because are you irish or are you english because you're part of the uk but you're irish so that has to lead to some confusion well um i'm, I'm not english 
uh, and the Scots, who are part of the United Kingdom, are not English. They're Scots. The Welsh okay. are, uh, are there. So, so I'm British. Okay. Um, uh, and the English are British, the Scots are British, the Welsh are British, the Northern Irish are British. Ah. But, um, uh, and, and the United Kingdom consists of two elements. It's uh, Great Britain, and Great Britain is the big island, so Scotland, Wales and England, right. and Northern Ireland, um, that's there. The United Kingdom used to be, until 1921, um, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland but but uh, it changed. It's now just Northern Ireland, uh, and because partition happened, um, I'm actually entitled to both citizenships. Oh, so really? I, I, so I can do the passport shuffle as I'm going through different places. It's got me into trouble before, but that's a different story. <laughs> well, you know what? Thank you for explaining that. I, I I'm a dumb American, but I never put it together that there's British and then there's a breakdown because yeah. I kind of just had them as synonymous: British English. Yeah. And, so, so yeah. no, Brit- British and English are, are not the same. The English are British, right. um, majority of them. Um, no, and interestingly, one of the things that uh, I, I look at the um, diversity that there is in the United States, and it's a very, very diverse country culturally, mm-hmm. uh, linguistically, and everything else. And I look at the um, equal diversity that we have in the United Kingdom, um, and the there, there's, there's, a, there's a very subtle difference between the way people see themselves. You get someone coming into the United States who's got um, been granted United States citizenship or mm-hmm. a, a, a green card leading to citizenship and all the rest of it. The moment they get off the airplane or the boat or something else and someone asks them, what nationality are you? They'll say American. Mm-hmm. And they'll swear allegiance to the flag and they'll have that loyalty to the United States. If you go into the United Kingdom and ask someone in different areas, they'll say, uh, I'm Pakistani, I'm Indian, I'm Chinese, mm. I'm uh, uh, from the West Indies, I'm African, I'm English, I'm Scots, I'm Irish, I'm Northern Irish. They'll not say, I'm British, first and foremost. Yeah, um, because we don't, we, don't, we don't have that um, one piece that's, that brings everyone together to think of themselves as um, British, first and foremost, and then whatever it, whatever the background is from there whereas i think the united states you've got you've got it, it works at the moment i hope you never lose it because if you do you're in trouble it but was costly got- to get there that yeah. actually occurred with the civil war in yeah. the united states and the um you will actually see it if you look at the writings pre-civil war yeah and they said the united states are post-civil war it became the united states is now yeah. that one word actually is everything that you just described and we we spent a lot of blood on it to get there yeah and it showed it it, it actually illustrates perfectly the importance of um uh, linguistics and language and understanding things from the local perspective because it's 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 those subtle changes that people think aren't important but actually they're probably the most important thing that 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 there is is that something that you've run into and maybe frustrates you from, you know, dealing with both parts of it? A friend of mine, um, Pete Turner, who also runs a great show, he calls himself a spy. He's a contractor and he would go all over the Middle East. He keeps talking about ground truth. That yep. is his favorite phrase in the world. But he said that was his whole mission. And everything he did was to find out the ground truth and then tell his superiors. Yep. Do you find that you find out the ground truth and then you report it up and maybe we sometimes project the higher levels on what we want the truth to be versus what the truth is? 
Oh, 100%. And I've got a, a, a good story behind that. Um, the, the ground truth, there are different variations of the ground truth. Um, and that's one of the complexities that there's in. Uh, there's the ground truth from your perspective, your background, mm-hmm. your cultural background, and all the rest of it. There's a ground truth from um, the person, the organization, the ethnic grouping, the country that you're looking at from, from their perspective. And then there's the ground truth that the people who are trying to cr- uh, create the effect the politicians, the military leaders, and all the rest of it, want it to be. And they don't always match. And right. from from an intelligence officer's perspective, um, and I was, I was a planner as well, and a, a planner's perspective, what you have to do is almost be the, the conscience of the decision makers so that what you're doing is you are giving um, a completely neutral um, view of what you can see and making an assessment um, from a completely neutral perspective so that you can act as a conscience for the decision makers. You can act as a representative for the people that are on the ground, but you can maintain the values and standards that you're coming in and, and, and working from and all the rest of it, which is a very difficult balance. Um, an example was, um, uh, as a senior intelligence officer, I was briefing a, a group of generals um, and they had just come back from Afghanistan. I, I hadn't been to Afghanistan uh, and they'd been there in, in the headquarters and they'd insisted on, because um, I'd just arrived in, uh, getting regular intelligence briefs on what was going on. And mm. at the time, the Taliban um, were carrying out conventional military style attacks against um, the forces that were in Afghanistan. So they'd um, put in um, what people would recognise as section, platoon, company, squad attacks um, uh, and uh, they'd, they'd only start opening fire whenever they could see the whites of um, the NATO forces' eyes as, mm. the, as they were coming in to deal with them. And it was it was great, straight um, military-style uh, warfare that was in there. But, uh, and, and very disciplined. And they were very good at it. Where they lost out was they didn't have the heavy weapons, they didn't have long-range weapons, they didn't have air support, they didn't have anything else. So they were getting beaten at every, every time they did it. Um, and uh, as I came in, we were starting to pick up uh, the first stages of... Um, uh, intelligence analysis suggesting that the Taliban had been in touch with Hezbollah um, and uh, they'd been in some training camps up in uh, northern Iran looking at putting together improvised explosive devices, mm. uh, the things that have been so successful in, in Iraq um, and a lot of the other conflicts that, are, that had gone on. Uh, and uh, they were learning the technology. And I brought, I'd got this at very high level intelligence and I brought this out in the, in the briefing. And the senior general that was there, who was he was a British general, um, who who was there, um, I, I got into the briefing. Said, and we're going to see a change in uh, the Taliban tactics. They're going to go more towards improvised explosive devices um, and away from conventional style attacks. Unlikely that they're going to go down suicide uh, bombing because that's not within their psyche. But oh. they may take they may take opportunities if they can find people that that can do it on their behalf. But it, it's more. Um, uh, hidden off-route um, uh, explosive devices and, and mines with uh, that being covered by conventional attacks. And he's, he, th- this general stood up and he was carrying one of these briefing filofaxes uh, with mm-hmm. his diary and everything else in it. And he threw it at me. Um, and I was a full bird colonel. He threw it at me and it hit the floor in front of me. And he said, Ingram, I've been there. You haven't. That will never, ever happen. And I don't want any more defeatist intelligence briefs from you. And he stormed out. And I thought, oh, wow. mm, that's a very good start with the boss. Um, I haven't had the opportunity to go back to him and say, I told you so. <laughs> because he was totally wrong. 100% wrong. And that's, we, we lost the majority of uh, British, US and other allied soldiers uh, and, and Afghanistan soldiers and, and police through improvised explosive devices and um, off, off, off route exp- explosive that's devices. And that's not even, I mean, I wish you couldn't 
have the opportunity to say, I told you so. I wish he was yeah, right. Yeah. I, I, it, I wish I wish he was right. I, I, I really wish he was right um, because it, it, it is horrible. But what that shows is, you know, I wasn't there, but I got an understanding of what was happening in the ground. I got a, I got, got a cultural understanding of where people were coming from. Um, I was taking the neutral analysis perspective and projecting you know, my views and, and, and my thoughts where they come from. Uh, but when it comes to the development of terrorism, having grown up in Northern Ireland, you know, I had 19 years of experience before I got into the military in analysing what was going on uh, from, from a terrorist perspective. Um, having been to school with some people who've gone off to be terrorists and worked with people who've gone off to be terrorists. In fact, they targeted me at one stage. Um, mm. And then I could bring I could bring that to bear in the analysis but he'd got a preconceived idea as to what he thought was going to happen. Um, and he didn't want to hear anything that would uh, change that preconceived idea. Um, and that's where you get the, th the three pieces that don't quite match together. Um, and as he was leaving, I said, sir, that's your remit not to accept my um, as uh, assessment, but I stand by my assessment and I'm not changing it. Which is good. Now, you bring up growing up around terrorists and then dealing with terrorists in the Middle East. Were there similarities or parallels, and were there differences? Could you go into that a little, generalized? Um, there were a lot of similarities in that you've got people who are fighting for um, uh, some form of belief or cause. Um, they themselves and within their cultural groups think it's right and it's proper, uh, and they're willing to use violence to achieve those ends. Um, they're also fighting from within the local community, um, and uh, they are um, operating out with the law so they can do anything they want outside the law. Um, whereas from a um, military perspective and wider security force perspective, you have to operate within the law wherever you are, otherwise you can be held to account. Um, and you're operating in uniform, so it's easy for you to be identified and trying to right. find these people who are operating within within different communities. Um, the... In Ireland, um, the IRA, INLA um, were almost, uh, and, and it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible word, and I don't mean it to be as, as light as it's, as it's going to come across to some people, but honourable terrorists, they tried hard mm. um, only to attack what they saw as legitimate targets. They tried hard in many cases to give uh, warnings, but they didn't do it all the time. And, and they were brutal and they were thugs. A lot of the loyalist terrorists were criminal thugs as a background, first first and foremost. Um, you get into the Middle East and you you just have to look at what um, uh, so-called Islamic State got up to, uh, right. the levels of depravity that we haven't seen anywhere else. And and you find with the cultures that there are in the places like the Middle East and, and, and elsewhere, those levels of depravity um, bringing in another level of terrorism that we just can't quite understand from our perspective. Um, and again, a lot of people who live in the Middle East can't understand from their perspective why these people are saying that they are Muslims and they're carrying out the sort of levels and of atrocities and the types of atrocities that they're doing. And actually, they're, they're killing more Muslims than they are killing people from the West. Um, and we, we forget that very easily. Um, but it's so so there are similarities. The differences are subtle, very, very subtle indeed. You know, um, it's funny that you um, bring that up or not funny at all. I apologize. But I am kind of interested in the different um, cultures, if you didn't pick that up earlier. And the Middle East and 
Northern Irish, from what I understand, are both honor cultures. We have that here in the, quote, South, which is a very Scots-Irish, go figure. And the honor culture comes out of a herding background to where they had um, animals and their family, you know, they and theirs, but they wandered different areas. And the only way they could prevent, say, a sheep getting stolen is if they had a reputation for this, the smallest slight that they will overreact to a huge degree. Yep. Have, have you found that as, as, as part of it? Like some of this stuff is just these slights and reactions that escalate. Very much so. I'd, I'd take that honor culture bit and put it more into uh, what are called tribal culture. Um, mm-hmm. And you, there, there are tribes and clans in Ireland. There are tribes and clans in Scotland. Mm-hmm. The tribes and clans in England, interestingly, have been dispersed and aren't quite as strong. Uh, but you, you get them all across Europe. You get them then into the Middle East and, and different family groupings and everything else. Um, uh, an example of where um, it was interesting and, and it suddenly clicked that this was an issue was when I was in Bosnia. Um, uh, we'd taken over from the United Nations. Uh, we were tr- had, had been um, dealing with a lot of the, the, the fighting that was going on, and we couldn't understand why um, in one village you'd find um, it was the Serbs fighting the Croats, fighting the Muslims. In a village a mile down the road, there was the Serbs and Muslims fighting the Croats. Mm. Another village um, a couple of miles away, there'd be the Croats and Serbs fighting the Muslims. And another, and, and we, we couldn't quite work this out because we were putting everything into these Western little boxes and going, right. you must fit into that. If you fit into that, you must fit into the wider structure. And, and, and none of this fitted. We couldn't work it out until we went back in history and started to talk to people on the ground. And we find that actually that may be the background label that we put on people that may be the culture that they're living in today. But actually mm-hmm. what they were fighting about were settling old family scores from back into the Second World War and the First World War. And these had stayed with them the whole way through from their tribal perspective. So you know, someone had killed someone's great uncle from their family in the Second World War in a horrific way. So they were settling that score. Mm-hmm. And that's why we got these groupings. So as soon as we got that, it then meant that all the intelligence briefings were not easy to put together, but we had a greater understanding and, and could then bring a greater effect into what we're getting people to do on the ground. But that's where you're getting ground truth, going back to um, that phrase you used earlier, is is really, really important. How do you get behind uh, beyond that? What do you mean by how do you get beyond that? It's... Um, I mean, what I'm saying is that, okay, <laughs> when you get into that cycle, okay, you mentioned the great um, uncle mm. gets murdered. So in return, uh, the niece of the other family gets murdered in the middle of her wedding. And so in return, and, and then it's like, okay, now both sides have their slights, but you know, my slight is worse because this is me and mine yep. and me and mine are more important than you and yours. Yep. So how do we stop the cycle? Um, that is the $64 million question. Um, and that's why a lot of conflicts perpetuate the whole way through. It's why um, you, we've got what's going on in Syria at the moment, why there's still problems in um, Iraq and Afghanistan. So if there, if there was one, um, that's why there's still problems in, in Ireland. You know, there's um, The north of Ireland is still the uh, single place with the most terrorist incidents anywhere in Europe and has been since even uh, the signing the Good Friday Agreement. It, it's it's trying to get that understanding 
um, that understanding from those that are there to try and bring peace, from those that are um, providing the security um, from within the country that they're there and amongst the different communities and get them to work together. Um, Northern Ireland, I'll come back because I can bring this in from a, from a very yeah, personal perspective. Um, when I went to school, um, we had the state schools who were in theory open to everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't, doesn't matter what your religious background was or anything else, they were open to everyone. They were all the Protestant schools because they were provi- provided by the state. Therefore, they're part of, uh, mm-hmm. the, uh, you know, they're, they were British. So uh, it was all the prods that went there. Um, you then got the church schools. Um, which were the Catholic schools, and um, you know, th- therefore you're, you immediately got from age of four a polarization, separation between the two different communities. Before mm. I went to school, I went, I went to nursery, and the nurseries were all mixed, and I had friends from all different parts of the community. But then, then you polarize people, and you put them in different uniforms. Well, hey, we've got mm. the reds versus the blues. The same thing happens in sport, and you're starting to create that difference. You then throw in a history where the history is violence. Um, and um, animosity against the other group that's there. So you st- you start to get those friction points that grow up, and you then throw in violence and animosity and atrocities uh, in the in the surrounding community, and a lot of the parents and adults talking about this on a daily basis, and you wonder why the communities start to polarize and get together. The solution, the solution is to breed it out. Force the communities to come together, force the schools to be integrated, force the communities to be integrated. And over a number of generations, um, and we're starting to see this now um, uh, with the growth of integrated schools in Northern Ireland, um, you, 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 you start to find that um, you know, as, as children grow up to become adults, to become decision makers, to become leaders in the community, they're going, well, we were all in the same team. What is this right. difference? That, that label doesn't matter anymore. That but this is sense. why this this is why solutions to a lot of these problems are not um, in the what we want in the West as politically acceptable timeframes or they expedient. Can multi- They're long term. They, they, they can take multiple generations, and and you know, that that ties into another little um, piece of of mine when looking at world orders and looking at where things are going from wider decision making process. We've got two world orders out, out there at the moment uh, and, and they're developing very fast. We've got world orders where decisions are taken in presidential or prime ministerial timeframes, three to five years. It's that quick gain. It's that, what can I get in the headlines tonight? What can show that I'm making progress in that? And we've got regimes around the world that can make decisions in multiple generational timeframes. Right. Look, look at how many years um, Vladimir Putin has been either president or prime minister of, of Russia. Um, look at um, Xi Jinping in China and uh, that the fact that he's got himself in position for life. Atoll Khomeini, um, uh, right. Kim Jong-un, North Korea, um, Bashar al-Assad in Syria. I, I can go on, but the, the, but mm-hmm. there's 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 that grouping of of um, global leaders, and, <laughs> and, uh, well, the despots and global leaders um, who who can sit and plan twenty five, thirty, thirty five years out. That makes they know that they they know they're going to be in in the decision making, and, and, and therefore they don't care what our current leaders do in three years or five years or today or tomorrow because uh, and, and if they can and this is almost probably another podcast by itself mm-hmm. manipulate um, them into doing stuff in a certain way by um, uh, there's a really the fantastic quote from a British general who was um, General Sir Rupert Smith who commanded our first UK armoured division in the first Gulf War and he said from an intelligence perspective when you're looking out there and all you see is a flat cam on the pond don't be afraid to pick up a stone 
and throw it in and look for the ripples. Mm. And if that doesn't work, throw another one in and look for the ripples because then you can start to work out what is going on. Well, if uh, someone is throwing stones politically into decision-making organizations and uh, that that have to react immediately and are always trying to get that soundbite. Um, you can keep people running around all over the place while you're working a longer-term um, uh, objective that you've measured in generational terms. Kim uh, Jong-un and Il yep, come to mind yeah, because yeah. They, they are masters of it. Now, the pattern I used to see was they would mouth off all winter and then yep. come spring – when the weather was a little bit better, they would be like, well, you know, m- maybe we can talk. It's like nobody's going to go in there during the winter. They know that. So <laughs> yeah, they would exactly. just mouth off and threaten and just be bellicose. And then uh, they come spring, they would come back to the table and they'd just run us in circles. Yeah, and uh, and they'd always be sending two messages out. Everyone sends two messages out, especially if they're politicians. There's one for your domestic political audience, and there's one for what you're trying to you're trying to achieve internationally. Um, and um, you know, they're 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 masters at it. And and we look at Afghanistan, and Afghanistan is a complete and utter abject failure. Um, and it was the moment that we said we were getting out because the Taliban, who think in multi generational terms are just sitting outside the villages now going, okay, so you're cooperating with NATO and um, NATO have said they're going and they're pulling the troops out. It may not be this year, may not be in five years' time, may not be in 10 years' time, but who's going to be there and coming back and settling all those old scores once they've gone? So who are you going to work for and who are you going to wait for? Are you going to continue your relationship with um, NATO and their their allied troops or are you going to support us in what we're doing? Uh, And therefore, whenever uh, your NATO and allied nations turned around and said, um, we're bringing uh, Afghanistan to an end. Um, All they did was they switched the allegiances of everyone that we'd lost so many service personnel uh, in trying to get around and think from an Afghan perspective, switch their allegiance to those that are looking at things from a long-term perspective. You see, I don't have great knowledge enough to get deep into that, but I do kind of wonder, though, I mean, there is a sunk cost fallacy angle of how long do we just keep throwing people at it when we know they're going to wait out generations. Is there an argument for, and I'm not deeply knowledgeable, but Vietnam, some have said we wound up winning Vietnam, not by the war, but by commerce, that going to Vietnam now, it's like, phew, it's very westernized because of culture and money and, and things like that. Is there an argument that because we don't understand their culture anyway, that maybe we shouldn't be in there poking a stick at everybody yep. and just step back, let them do their thing and say, hey, you know, um, we got some cool stuff here. If you want to participate here, you know, yeah. come on over, uh, you know, uh, have some cool things. 100%, you know, instead of jumping in and when when you see the you know, different sides fighting going, this is terrible. Look, it's been all over CNN. Um, we have to stop it. Um, well, why don't we just circle it and provide support um, humanitarian support and other bits and pieces. Stop it breaking out. We got into Afghanistan because of the um, uh, the war on terror after after right. not, the, the you know the horrific nine eleven because uh, uh, Al Qaeda were using um, a lawless Afghanistan as as their training development site. Um, but it's but it's it, it's working instead of jumping in very very quickly. It's sitting looking at what needs to be done um, to try and a contain it. B, you, instead of pouring petrol on the fire, try and find something that'll suppress the fire. 
um, and stop it, and certainly stop it spreading out any further. And, and we're not good at that. We historically we've been very very poor at that, and, and we've we've made it spread out um, faster and faster and faster. And, and we're actually fueling a lot of the conflicts that there are around the world. I think that our our whole approach to the Arab Spring, for example, if you look at that, has done nothing but fuel um, uh, the, the the problems that we're having today. ISIS was uh, an allied construct for because of what we did in Iraq. Mm. You know, we, the, the majority of the ISIS leaders that came out, where they designed the structure of ISIS and everything else, um, had been um, former Iraqi regime senior officers uh, that were being held in Abu Ghraib. Abu hmm. Ghraib was their their initial planning and training hub where they put it all together. Well, we trained Bin Laden but, too, and we trained yeah, um, yeah. I, I forgot his name in uh, Somalia, yeah, Mogadishu. Yeah, we, we trained yeah, we, him. Yes, we've we, we've we've got we've got this habit of doing it because remember we're doing things in three to five year decision cycles. Right. Um, uh, the legacy is lasting, multi generational. Is that we're not, we're not looking that through? Are we not learning? Because I kind of feel like we successfully actually did the cold war as oh, in well, the, because we were so frozen with mutually assured destruction that we didn't dare move too much. And we encouraged things like commerce and television signals. And, and I remember that Levi's were the hottest thing in the Soviet union back in the eighties, how people could yeah. take a couple pairs of Levi's and fund an entire trip <laughs> while they were there. But yeah. didn't we sort of win the cold war by by not doing things and just saying, hey, you know, things are pretty good over here. Sucks for you. Sorry. Well, we, we won the Cold War um, because the uh, we had military credibility mm-hmm. um, and we ran a technological race. Um, and the technological race was relatively straightforward for the West to run because we had the resources, we had the wealth, we had right. everything else. Um, it bankrupted the Soviet Union, as, mm-hmm. it, as it was, um, because they didn't have access to the technology. They didn't have um, access to um, a lot of the capabilities that, that were out there. And it cost them five, ten times as much to also develop the culture, themselves. I would argue, because in the, Soviet, the communist culture, you don't choose what you're uh, adept at doing. You get assigned. Yeah. So, you yeah. know what? You're going to be a mechanic. Well, you just as you mentioned in, early in your career, you weren't really into what you were doing. You yeah. found another path. In the West, Western culture has something good. We do have opportunities to pursue our preferred path versus an assigned path, and I think that has I, affected. Yeah, I think I think I think that was less of an issue because if we look at it from their perspective, yeah, if we look at it from our perspective, yes, hundred um, percent. You know, they, they didn't have the opportunities. People would have been disaffected because they were ordered to be a mechanic and they wanted they, they wanted to be a doctor, or um, they're they're ordered to be um, uh, in the army and they wanted to be in the navy. Um, uh, so from 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 uh, so choice was taken away, but from their perspective, where the culture and society was, um, you fit into what society's done, um, what society's um, the path society's pushing you down. That's been groomed into you from the youngest age of when you're born into your family, because you tend mm-hmm. to go down the same sorts of paths that your family have done. There's still a, there was still a great family culture uh, and moving on, um, and and. It's not that's not as much of an issue as the economic issue uh, was. I've just finished reading a, a, a fantastic book about 1983, and mm-hmm. 1983 was the year that we came closest to having a nuclear exchange between uh, really? the uh, the USSR and the West, and it was down to minutes. 
Um, it had got to, um, and Dropoff was the um, uh, Russian president at the time, and um, he was um, uh, had got his nuclear forces uh, deployed out into the field and down to the um, uh, the highest readiness they had ever been. Worse than the even, Cuban Missile Crisis. Yep. Whoa. Yep. And all because there'd been a big NATO exercise. There'd been um, different com- communications that were going on b- between NATO leaders at, at, at the time. Uh, and there was a, uh, a an operation being run by um, Russian intelligence services out across all of the different countries that were looking for warnings and indicators um, to suggest that the West was going to carry out a preemptive nuclear strike. Mm. The first thing the first thing that had happened that, that had triggered their um, greatest concern about it was uh, the announcement of the Star Wars program by President Reagan at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 the Russians put that together and said, well, if if Star Wars exists and we don't know that it doesn't exist already, uh, and they can destroy our missiles, that means that uh, the Americans can get a first strike in against us. Therefore, they must be going to do a first strike against us, and therefore um, we're going to look for the indicators in that. And if you look at the, uh, if you go back into the the history books and look at all the intelligence indicators they put out, um, they they were marking the ability of their different um, intelligence stations around the world as to how many indicators they ticked, yes, it's achieved it. And if they weren't identifying it, they were then criticising them, saying you're not doing your job good enough. Um, so culturally, they were they were wanting to go and say, well, actually, we've seen this. And you know, the indicators were uh, daft things like um, the lights are staying on in the military headquarters later at night because... Yeah. Um, uh, they're planning that, that in the room. That, right. that, yeah, exactly. That means they're they're working hard and they're doing more planning than they're doing anything else. Versus a party, they, yeah, <laughs> which or, is what we'd be or, doing. Or 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 the, or the culture's changed and they've they've, they've changed the, the lighting control mechanism in the right. building and and done things like that. So it, yeah, it, it it really was. And there's there's some fascinating history books out there about um, the espionage operations that were going on in uh, in 1983. And I'd, I'd highly recommend if your listeners do just have a look at them on Amazon and they'll they'll, they'll jump. Wow. That sounds scary. Um, well, God, we've covered a lot and we barely scratched the surface. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah uh, culturally, um, uh, and it's probably genetically, you're given my background. I can, I can talk about anything and everything and, and will do all the, all the time um, until people get bored. And then, then we just turn to the bottle of whiskey. Well, fantastic. But what I want to do is definitely plan to have you back. And to close out, I just have to ask. Jeffrey Epstein, Prince Andrew, your thoughts? Epstein, Andrew. Well, it's clear they knew each other. It's clear they were friends. Um, it's possible that something happened. Um, that's there. However, um, I know that the Metropolitan Police have looked at it in detail. Uh, I know the FBI will have looked at it in detail. Um, and if there was anything that um, uh, would have the potential of bringing charges, I think that would have come out at the moment. Um, uh, or, or before before this moment, um, is it good for the gutter press? Does it sell more newspapers because it's scandal and everything else? Of course it does. Um, and and therefore, is it within the press interest to keep it stirred and keep it in the pot? Yep, definitely. Um, was Epstein uh, did Epstein commit suicide? Um, it looks highly unlikely. <laughs> I was going to you know, ask you about a term you have used before, um, Verania. I think it is. Uh, Do you yes. think that? And I'm just going to throw out a speculation to where, obviously... You've read my blogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guilty. Um, it, could one speculate that Epstein had knowledge of people who were so powerful 
and so connected that he had to die. Who cares if it's obvious or not? We'll just say it's suicide, no matter what the proof looks like. Would that fall under the Verania definition? Um, Verania is is it's saying something that you know not uh, not to be true, um, uh, but know that no one's going to hold you to um, account for it. Um, yes, it is a possibility. Um, okay. it, the, the, the the thing is with with all of these instances uh, incidents that happen out there, there is the wild Machiavellian answer. There is the um, answer that uh, is coming out and uh, is being delivered to us, and then there's uh, the simplest answer, and which is usually nine banal. Nine, which is usually completely banal. N- nine times out of ten, in fact, probably nine hundred ninety-nine times out of uh, out of out of a thousand, it's that simple banal answer is the right one. Um, sure, but Occam's um, razor. <laughs> but, but but yeah, but you know it, the the others are 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 possible, and in and in a, an environment of a lack of information, and we're in an environment of lack of information. You can't write any possibility off until you get more information that allows you to um, be more certain about about one path or the other. Well, perfect. We'll close on that. That's a teaser for we can get deeper into intelligence through the years, and more what's going on from your perspective. Now, people can find you for now at grayhairmedia.com. Is that gray with an E or an A? I forget. That, that's gray with an E, and it's the hair as in the animal. So it, it's the British gotcha. spelling of gray, um, even though I'm an Irishman, British <laughs> Irishman. Um, so G-R-E-Y-H-A-R-E media.com. And you have your own podcast, too. Um, hashtag I, with Ingram, right? I, I, I do. I've, I've just started that. So um, yeah, there, there's, there's a few interesting ones on there. Well, fantastic. And hey, thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Good to talk. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. What Was That Like might just be the most intriguing podcast you'll ever hear. Each episode is a conversation with a regular person who's been through an extremely unusual situation. Like Jeremy, who was bitten by a rattlesnake. Or Jennifer, who accidentally killed someone. Or Luke, who got caught smuggling cocaine. Real people in unreal situations. Listen and subscribe at whatwasthatlike.com. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on, because school is now in session.